Well, as Brooke said, we're sort of toward the tail end of our five-week series on revival, and man, preaching through revival is one thing. You never feel adequate for any task, but certainly not for this one. Uh, but man, experiencing revival is what we're preaching for and what we're praying for. So that's what I'm going to be preaching and praying for this morning. I pray you'll join me. Um, you know, when we look at this passage, this is really a passage on waiting. Uh, our posture in revival is really one of waiting and asking and begging God to come and to revive us. When we think about the Holy Spirit, like He is the agent of change in revival. Uh, through the work of Christ and what he's done, he brings Christ and his power and his work to bear in our lives. Without that, we, we are totally powerless. We're like a branch that's been cut off from a tree that's just sitting there. Um, we think of the Holy Spirit often as Christians as, as uh, bringing the work of Christ to bear on us, saving us through the work of Jesus Christ for us, making us alive, sealing, signing and sealing our salvation, and then sort of, okay, then we get to live the Christian life. But actually, the way that the book of Acts and even this chapter presents in the way that Jesus talks about waiting on the Holy Spirit here, and then you will receive power to do what I've called you to do, is really one of, yes, he saves, but that's not the end of it. He saves us, and he sanctifies us throughout our lives, but he also continually fills us with himself in order to minister Christ effectively and in power. And if we don't have that, if we don't have per ongoing personal in corporate filling, revival, um, we're not going to be able to do the work that Christ has called us to. We might think we are, but we'll be doing it in our own strength. So um, with no further ado, let's just jump in in this text to, to point one. And I think you've probably got them up on the screen there if you're taking notes. But point one, just prayer. Wait is the command that Jesus gives to his disciples right before he ascends um, to the Father. Wait for the promise of the Father there in verse 4 is what Jesus tells them. This, this waiting is not a loitering, just a sort of a listless waiting around and twiddling thumbs. It's an active waiting, sort of like a plant waits for sun and for rain, is rooted and is reaching up, as it were, for life, without which it can't grow. Um, verse 14, the last verse in our text that Brooks read, verse 14 says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. In the ESV Study Bible, says this. It says it probably means that they were praying constantly for 10 straight days all the way from his ascension, which was 40 days after the cross from Passover, from his ascension all the way until Pentecost when the Spirit fell. And we'll hit that next week, Acts chapter 2. That'll be the end, Pentecost Sunday, next Sunday. It'll be the, the capstone, as it were, of our preaching on revival. And then we're just going to be begging God for it, as we are now. But for, it probably means that for 10 days straight, there were 120 people or so in this room that Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, go to the upper room, and wait there for me. They weren't just hanging out. They weren't just talking. They were going after God hard. They were begging God to come, and they were waiting actively as a plant waits for rain and sun for the Holy Spirit to descend. And they didn't even really know quite what that meant, I think, at the time. There's some evidence for that, and we'll look at that. But he did descend. So 10 straight days of praying earnestly. I want you to note the wording in verse 4. Jesus commanded them to wait. He said what? For the promise of the Father. So, in other words, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. The Father, how do you know? Because the Father, God the Father has promised it. And when God promises something, what happens? He delivers every single time. So you're guaranteed to get this promise. Now I want you to go beg God for it. That's, that is exactly the economy of the Christian life. 
You have every promise is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Now go beg God for it. Martin Luther, the reformer, uh, he calls this plundering heaven. Heaven, all of heaven and all of its resources and all that Christ has and is privy to as the only son of God the Father, the creator, as the one who created all things and who has won all things for us. He is ready to just dole them out, to give them to us, but he's holding them and he's waiting for us to beg him for them, to plunder heaven through our prayers. And through our prayers, we bring heaven down. What did Jesus say in the Lord's Prayer? The disciples were like, teach us to pray. And he said, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. This is the first part of how you ought to pray. Thy will be done, what? On earth as it is in heaven. Our prayers ought to bring heaven and are meant to bring heaven down and all that Christ has won for us. It's not us working. Prayer is the work. It's not preparation for the work. It is the work, but it is the work because it's simply accessing what we're already privy to because of the work of Jesus Christ, the finished, satisfactory, complete work of Jesus. So prayer is plundering heaven, and that's what they're doing for 10 days here. Um, you know, you, you read, I think, maybe my favorite psalm. It's almost heresy to say it's not Psalm 23. I love Psalm 23. But Psalm um, 63. I love Psalm 63. David's in a desert. He's in the Judean southern desert in the Negev. And he says, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. In a dry and a weary land where there is no water, my soul thirsts for you. I'm so thirsty for you. In verse 2, the first word in verse 2, right after that, is the key. He says, so, or therefore, so, I have beheld you. I have gazed on you in your sanctuary. How did he get to that place? Because he was in a place where there was nothing else and he was desperate for the living God. He was so hungry and thirsty for the living God, crying out for God, 10 days in prayer, as it were, begging for God, on his knees, God, come, God, come. So, therefore, I beheld you in all of your glory. Remember that, that sermon on Isaiah 6 that kind of started off? It was the prelude to the, the series on revival. Just the beginning of revival is indeed having a vision of the living God. And how else can we see God but through the person of Jesus Christ? Jesus shows us who the Father is. So gazing on the beauty of Christ, seeing Christ, and being hungry. You know, my friend Justin, who's actually here today, he was telling me last week at, um, at lunch about how he fasted. I hope you didn't mind me saying this. He fasted for a week. I've never done that, and I, that's something to shoot for. I mean, man, that sounds scary, but that's where the power comes from. Um, it's simple, but it's hard. And it's emptying ourselves and letting God do what he wants to do. So he's fasting for a week, just asking God for vision and direction. And he said, he was cutting, his son said, hey, dad, can I, I would love a cucumber right now. And, he, and so he's, okay. So he's cutting this cucumber. And he's, I don't know, halfway through the fast, whatever, but he's plenty hungry, three or four days in. And man, he, he said, I was cutting that cucumber. And I was just, my mouth was watering. And like literally my tear, my eyes were watering. I was like crying for want of this cucumber. It's just a simple vegetable. He was, it looked so delicious. Why? Does a cucumber normally do that to you? No. But why? Because he was so hungry. His fast had cultivated a hunger such that when he saw this beautiful vegetable that God made, he saw it like for all that it was worth and just, man, what a delicious piece of food. Why? And man, why don't we appreciate cucumbers like that? Because I'm eating Cheetos, I'm eating pizza, I'm eating, I'm, I'm eating sweet tarts like I did last night coming back from Austin trying to stay awake, drinking 
drinking a, an icy and eating sweet tarts. Man, if I'm eating sweet tarts, if I got a diet of Doritos or whatever, I'm not going to be hungry for a cucumber. And in our lives, guys, we, I just want to encourage us. I want to encourage me. We cram, forget food, we cram in our culture more than any other culture guaranteed on the face of the earth in history. We cram our souls with crap, with just stuff that is empty calories that fills up space, fills up the quiet, fills up the silence with our, all of our media and everything else and the zipping and the beeping and the screens and I'm guilty as anyone, but it it means that we're not creating space for the living God. We're not cultivating a hunger. We're not waiting on him. Because waiting on him in prayer, it's a spirit of prayer. It's a spirit of waiting. It's being constant in prayer. It's not just being on our knees in a circle. It's being, you know, Andrew Murray, one of my favorite theologians and write, devotional writers and one of my favorite quotes on prayer, he says, we pray as we live because it is the life that prays. To, to, have, to be a people whose life is a prayer is to be a people who are really fasting on things that are good, but so that we can feast on the living God. You know, Mary, I think of Mary and Martha in that famous scene uh, in history that happened sometime before Jesus' cross where Mary's, Martha's scurrying around doing all sorts of good things, like doing what women were called to do in that culture at that time. And if she wasn't doing it, nobody would have been. She's making food for Jesus and his disciples, really important. But Jesus says this, like, shocking. And actually, in that culture, Mary should not have been sitting at Jesus' feet. She should have been in the kitchen with her sister. And that's what Martha, Martha takes that to Jesus. And she's like, Jesus, will you please tell my sister to get in the kitchen with me? And Jesus says something culturally extremely, extremely shocking and counterculturally. He says, Martha, you're so concerned about all these good things. But Mary has chosen the better part. And there's really only one thing necessary. And she has chosen that thing, and it will not be taken from her. And look, we're still 2,000 years later talking about what Mary did. She chose to sit at the feet of Jesus, to cultivate a hunger, to feed on Christ, as we will together after I finish. Guys, I just want to be a people who make that our prayer. If we're not there, we don't have to feel guilty about it. God will get us there. But to be carving out things in our lives, saying no to things so that we can say yes to more of God, because he, he is ready for us to plunder heaven. He is telling us to plunder heaven. He is telling us to wait on him. Um, so wait for the promise of the Father. It's counterintuitive, this waiting. We're Americans. We want to do something. We're going to do it right now. If you're an American man, it's even worse, probably. Um, this waiting around, it feels like laziness, but as I've just said, it's, it's an active waiting, like a plant for the sun. It's not um, remember verse 14, they were devoting themselves in one accord, devoting themselves, a strong word to prayer. It's a total surrender um, of body and soul. Prayer is not preparation for the work. Prayer is the work. That we could be a people whose work is a work of being on our knees, literally, but also in our posture, crying out to the living God to move so that when, that when we as a church are working and preaching the gospel and acting, and we know that we're following the living God because we've been waiting for him and crying out to him, and he's the one who's empowered us. We're not just going and doing things on our own. And that's, that's a pride stripper because I want to get to work now, and I want to, when I do that, I'm going to probably take credit in my flesh for that. But if it's God who comes, it's God who moves us through no good of our own, but through the finished work of Christ, through the power of his Holy Spirit, we can't take, it's a lot harder to take credit. And look how clueless we were, and then look what he did. And that's what we see here 
in this passage. So Jesus in verse 4, he orders them to wait in Jerusalem and not to depart until they get the Holy Spirit. Now, in their flesh, guys, they, the, the disciples would have wanted to bolt. Because think about what has just happened in the place that he has told them to wait. Jesus was crucified by all the leaders of Jerusalem, by the Romans who had political control and by the Jews who had theological and the soft power. So the leaders, all the higher-ups, had just crucified Jesus Christ, and then there was rumor of his resurrection, and so they're even more mad, like a bunch of hornets that just got a stick stuck in their nest. So Jerusalem is the most dangerous place in the world for them to be. And Jesus says, yeah, stay there. Go back there and just stay for a while and wait. These are the people that Jesus, he came to die in Jerusalem at the hands of evil men. Four evil men, four sinners. There's only one type. Us, sinners, evil. We hate God in our flesh. He died for us to make us the children of God. So he died for these people, and the city at this point is swollen because 50 days after Passover, one of the other three big annual feasts is a feast of weeks, the Feast of Harvest for the Jews, May, June. And it's about to happen. Pentecost is when it happens, and its city is just swollen. It's, it's full of people, which is why when the Spirit descends in Acts 2, as we'll look at next week, they go out and they're preaching, and 3,000 are saved. There's so many people from all over the diaspora, from all over the scattering of the Jews, all over the Hellenistic world, the Mediterranean Rim. They've all come for this big feast for Passover, and then a lot of them will stay for the Feast of Weeks. So Jesus calls us to dangerous places, to places that we wouldn't normally go, the place is full of sinners, the place is full of people that hate him, that crucified him, as it were, and he calls us to where the people are. Tim Keller, one of the things that he loves sharing is that one of his friends said at one point, God loves, now we were in Austin last night, I love the country, God loves the country, God made the country, but he says God loves the city more than God loves the country. Again, I love the country, but he loves the city more, why? Because he loves people more than he loves plants. He loves plants. God loves plants. He made them. But he loves people more. He didn't die for plants. He did in an ancillary way because even plants are going to be renewed when he comes again in the new creation. But he died for us. And, and this is where the people are. He's going to call us to where, and look at where he's called us. In a city, yes, full of people growing maybe faster than any city in the United States. I think it's going to be at 9 million in like a decade or something silly. And it's certainly the most international city, not only in America, probably in the world and probably in the history of the world. Because America is a city of, of immigrants. It's what we are. Um, we're a melting pot of, of people that have come here from other countries. That's the beauty of America. And he has called us to the epicenter of that action. The nations are here. The people are here. The graft and the crime and the evil and the lostness, it is here. And what does he call us to do? To wait on him. Because he has something specific for us. He called us specifically here. And he has work for us to do. What is it, Lord? We're waiting on you. We are waiting on you. How's that going to look? I don't know. I'm not sure. But God's sure. So let's wait together on him. We'll figure out what that means together. Okay? Y'all, there is no plan B for how God's going to move in power. There is only a plan A. God doesn't do plan B. Okay? There is only a plan A, and this is it. This waiting. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my heroes, says, uh, he quotes a man called Smeaton, last name, as to the particular mode of praying, we may say that in every season of general awakening, the Christian community waits just as they waited for the effusion of the Spirit with one accord in prayer and supplication. 
in the interval between the Ascension and Pentecost. In every season, guys, did you get that? In every season of general awakening throughout the history of the church, this is the blueprint for the Holy Spirit coming down and empowering us for the work of the ministry. This is not a one-time deal. I think we get hugely mistaken. We read Acts 1 and 2 and think, okay, one and done. No, it's the only blueprint we have in the Bible for how the church is to be. It is the thing we ought to be emulating, asking God for, doing again and again and again. And unless he does that, we're just working in our own power. And even if we see results, they're not the results that God has died for and that God is wanting to do through us, okay? So I want to say this. If you hear nothing else, I feel like this is sort of the nub of this text. There is a Holy Spirit sealing for the day of salvation. Without the Holy Spirit, we are not new in Christ. If we have not believed on Christ, he died for me, he rose from the dead, and had the Holy Spirit come and live inside of us, through that faith, which is like an open hand that receives all that Christ has. It's not a work. Faith is the opposite of work. That's why it's so important. It's saying, I can't, you can, you did. Give me some. Give me all of you. The Holy Spirit comes, and he fills us, and he seals us. This is not what we're seeing here. This is not salvific. It's for effectiveness in ministry. And we need it. We need it constantly. We need this kind of revival, this kind of baptism of the Holy Spirit, if I can use that phrase, because it's here. Lloyd-Jones continues... He says, listen to this, no other course but that of active waiting in prayer has been prescribed. No other course. There's no plan B. And the church of the, not programs, this. The church of the present has all the warrants she has ever had to wait, expect, and pray. The first disciples waited in the youthfulness of simple hope. Get this, not for a spirit which they had not, but for more of the spirit which they had. This is the blueprint for us. And Christianity, he says, has not outlived itself. Number one, a few points to support that, that this wasn't salvific. It was for those that were already saved, that already knew God, that were already drawn to him and already his sons. When he died and rose again from the dead in John 20, what did he tell the the women to go tell the disciples? You go tell my brothers that I'm going to my father and to their father. Okay, they're already family. How? Not because of their works. They all scattered he made them, he died and paid for their sins, and he rose from the dead, and the father, which meant the Father had accepted his payment. And he said, I've done everything necessary for you to be family. You're now family. You go tell them now. They're my brothers. They're sons of the Father. He breathed on them in the same chapter, John 20. He breathed his spirit, or his breath, same word in the Greek, on them. And they were saved. But y'all, in this passage, they have no understanding, and they have no power. And I want to dig into that some. Let me show you what I mean. First, they had no understanding. Um, Look at verse 6, the question that they ask, put it up on the screen here, but the question that they ask Jesus right before he's about to ascend into the cloud, is it now that you're going (laughs) to, is it now that you're going to reestablish Israel? Calvin comments on this question. It's brutal in, in its simplicity and devastating. He says, John Calvin says, that when as they had been diligently instructed by the space of three whole years by Jesus. They betray no less ignorance than if they had never heard a word. Here, here, listen to this sentence. There are as many errors in this question as words. That's so, Calvin. So true. We could literally spend an entire sermon series on how many errors they make in just this one statement. Okay, verse 2. He had been, look at verse 2. He had been giving them commands through the Holy Spirit, presumably for 40 days after his resurrection. They were saved. They were believers just like you and me. They had the Spirit, just like you and me. 
but they had not had the filling, the baptism of the Spirit for effectiveness of work in ministry. And he had been giving them commands through the Holy Spirit this whole time, and still they're just clueless as geese, okay? Verse 3, he had been instructing them, it says, for 40 days about what? The kingdom of God. And that's the very thing they asked the question about and get completely wrong. They're still thinking of God's kingdom as a geopolitical entity. As Israel, uh, are you going to come and throw off the Roman yoke, essentially is what they're asking. And they completely miss the fact that Jesus is going global with Israel. He's going to make his Israel, his church, global, and it's going to spread all across the world, and he's going to be in every place that it is. He's going to go into every heart that trusts in him. He's not just going to be one person. He's going to be one person ruling from heaven in every person that calls him Lord and Savior through that Holy Spirit. He's going to blow the doors off of this ethnic Israel geopolitical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom that's going to be inside of us, and it's going to go out and change all creation. But they miss all that. Why? Because they don't have the filling of the Holy Spirit for power and understanding. But they waited and they pled for it, and man, they got it. And you see that when Peter gets up to preach. Boy, next week we're going to see that. But secondly, so they have no understanding without this baptism, even though they're Christians. But they also have no power. Okay, that's point two. Let's move to point two. They have no power. So point two after prayer is the power. Be filled would be the command. Be filled. Verse 8 says, Jesus says it plainly, he says, wait here in the lion's den, as it were, in Jerusalem where I was crucified, and he will give you, the Holy Spirit, Father will give you his Holy Spirit, my Spirit, the Spirit of Christ himself. He will give you power and all the power that you need for life and ministry. So don't worry about a thing, just wait and pray. So you need power, the Holy Spirit's going to give it. This isn't water for cleansing, but Holy Spirit fire to go out and to burn as gas in the engine and to enable them to go out and to do what Jesus did as one person, as many persons. This is to be the normal for his church. Um, power to be witnesses, verse 8, you will be my witnesses. The word there, witnesses in the Greek, some of you know this, is the word that we get our word martyr from. It's martyros, okay? Um, it doesn't mean that witnesses in the Greek then meant martyrs, but what it means is that uh, Many, it, many witnesses of Christ in the early church and in the church throughout history, because they were witnesses, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, eyes fixed on Christ, proclaiming the gospel, doing deeds and teaching just as he did, they got killed and persecuted. And that's how we get our English word martyr. See the relation? Um, and so there's a difference between, they're not called advocates. He doesn't say you will be my advocates. There's a difference between an advocate and a witness. Being an advocate is making a case, making a case with lots of data points for something or for a person. And it's good to do that. You know, you have more than a carpenter and you have apologetics and we ought to be making apologetic cases. But Jesus doesn't say you're going to be my advocate, you're going to argue for why I exist and why I am who I am and why I've done what I've done and how effective it is. He says you're going to be my witnesses. What's a witness? A witness doesn't argue for something. A witness says, right there, I saw him, I'm with him, I know him, I have him in my heart. I, was with, I ate with him, I, I saw him risen from the dead, I talked with him, I saw him rise, and I know him. A witness says, I know him. A witness points to a person. You know, the, the pastor of the largest church in the Middle East, in Cairo, Pastor Same, came in two years ago to a group of us, and he gave us about 30 minutes, and it was one of those powerful little sermons. He hadn't even prepared for it, I don't think, but he just walked in with the joy of the Lord on him, free as a bird. I thought he'd be walking in with the weight of the world on his shoulders, so persecuted. No, free as a bird. And his sermon was essentially like, 
we, somebody asked him, they said, how, how do you do this as a pastor in this persecuted place with I mean, 30,000 tuning in weekly, all these people that are being persecuted, he's equipping. He said, man, I just point them to Jesus. Get out of the way. Like, man, Lord, make me not a door that people look at and they can't see anything behind me. Make me a window. People look at me and they just don't even see me. I'm clear glass. And people look at me and they just, they see Jesus behind me. Would we be that kind of people? And that's really what a witness is. A witness just says, get thee to Christ. And that's one thing I love about our evangelism training. It's not anything really more than getting to know someone, loving them, sitting down with them, opening the book of John with them, and looking at Jesus together and saying, get thee to Jesus. Jesus, person, meet. What do you think? Jesus, take them. Do what you want with them. Isn't, and that's our job. Like, that's what he calls us to do. The Holy Spirit, the helper, the paraclete, that's his job. He's often called the spotlight, the spotlight of the Trinity. He, his job is to spotlight Jesus Christ in all of his glory, having come and become a man for us and dying the death of a criminal and worse, enduring the wrath of God against the sin of the world. And then rising victorious from the dead three days later and reigning now in power through his church, through their weakness, through their suffering, through their brokenness. <laughs> the Holy Spirit spotlights, spotlights Christ in our ministry. He just helps us to go, get thee to Jesus. Look at Jesus. How wonderful is Jesus? Can I introduce you? Let me introduce you. Let me tell you about him. Let me proclaim him. Let me do the work that he's doing. This is, this is what the Holy Spirit empowers us to do, to be witnesses, not advocates. In verse 9, Luke tells us that Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Y'all, this is not, I think we read this and we think, this is, that's kind of random. What, or, or, oh, there were, yeah, there were clouds in the sky and he just, boop, popped up into one. It's not the way the biblical writer, they don't just write stuff for the heck of writing it. This is not meteorological. It's theological. It's not, this is not a meteorological piece of information. Oh, there was a cloud there and he popped up in a cloud and, and then... No, it's theological. Luke is making a statement here in this book of Acts about what is happening in the ascension. This is not just a levitation and then a disappearance, poof, into a cloud. Um, it is a statement that Christ has all power, and it's a vindication of the fact that everything he has done necessary for the renewing of creation and for the restoration of us to be sons and daughters of God and for anyone who looks to him he has been vindicated. He has done everything necessary for that to happen. So let me explain that. Exodus 19, look at, thinking about clouds. Exodus 19, Genesis, Exodus, second book of the Bible. Um, God brings his people with a mighty hand out of Israel, uh, excuse me, out of Egypt, into the desert, into the mountain of Sinai. And he comes down in this mighty presence onto the mountain and he blackens the mountain with fire. And he says, man, if you even touch the mountain, if I haven't told you to come up, you can't approach me any way you want to, but only according to my word. If you touch the mountain the wrong way, you'll just die. But he comes down what? In a cloud. This is God and how he often manifests himself in power. Forty years in the desert, how did God lead his people? In fire, by night, and then by day in cloud. And whenever Moses would go into the tabernacle, the mobile temple in the wilderness, a cloud would come down when God would meet with him. God's presence in power. Um, the transfiguration, when Jesus takes his three favorites, his three favorite disciples up to the mountain, and he reveals a bit of his glory to them. He's been 
sort of shrouded in weakness, but then he kind of cracks open some of his glory for them and shows them and is vindicated and validated, rather validated by the Father, what happens? God's presence comes in a cloud. And he says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Um, What do the angels say to the apostles in verse 11? They say this in verse 11. They say, he will come from heaven the same way you saw him go up into heaven. Namely, he'll come in power, not in weakness. The weakness part's finished. You, church, are going to be weak, but through your weakness, the power of Christ is going to be made manifest. Psalm 104, verse 1 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O my God, you are very great. You're clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the water. Get this. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. God on clouds, God in cloud, is a sign of his power. It's an expression of his power over all creation. Even more appositely from the trial of Jesus in Matthew 26, verse 62 and following, he says, And the high priest stood up and said, this is right before the cross, right as Jesus is going through the sham trial before he's crucified. The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus looked like a failure, like he was weak. His resurrection, but especially his ascension, show in Old Testament terms, in God speak, as it were, how strong he is. He is heading, the ascension shows us, he is heading to the power seat of the universe to share the throne with God the Father. Only he could do that. He's going to the control center of the cosmos, to heaven, to God's throne, to God's right hand. Why right hand? It's the hand of power in the ancient Near Eastern sort of way of putting things. He's going to the hand of power and everything that he says will happen, will happen. Everything he does from there is going to be affected, is going to be accomplished. And he is there representing us and connecting us to him through his Holy Spirit. And from there, he will rule through his body, the church, until his kingdom is global and until his glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And last time I checked, there was not a single dry piece of seabed. God's glory through the reign of Christ, by his body, the church, in faith in what he's done, filled with his Holy Spirit, his glory will cover all of the earth. And we get to be a part of that. And it's waiting to be filled with his Spirit and begging for it over and over and over and over, without which there is no, without this kind of revival, without this kind of baptism, without this kind of filling, there is no church history. But with it, we continue, and we will continue. Until his glory covers the earth, his waters cover the sea, Habakkuk 2.14, and his enemies are made, what, a footstool for his feet. He's going to power, that's what the ascension says. He is going to power as he enters the clouds. He is going to be seated in power. He will return in the same way, in power, not in weakness. Jesus had told them, get this guys, get this. Jesus had told them, I'm going to the Father but it's better for you that I go. Because as soon as he said, I'm going to the Father, and hey, I'm leaving, they got sad, right? We've talked about this before. Their countenances dropped, of course. But he says, whoa, 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 cheer up, though. 
it's going to be better that I'm leaving you. What? Why? Because at that time, the Father is going to send you a helper. When I get there, I and the Father are going to send you a helper. So number one, as soon as they receive the Spirit they've been begging for for 10 days in solidarity, what do they know? They know, one, that Christ is reigning at the seat of power. Do you know that the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit fills us, enlivens us for salvation and for the work of Christ, we know that Jesus is reigning in power, no matter what we're going through here on earth, and we are too through him, and that we win, no matter what we're going through. And he says, when I get there, again, I will send my spirit to live in you. So when the disciples received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they've been begging God for it, they knew. They saw Jesus ascend into a cloud, and that was it. But when they, when the Holy Spirit came down, they knew Jesus got there. He said, as soon as I get to be with the Father, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. They knew that he made it. They knew that he's reigning. They knew that he's seated, that nothing can contest his rule. Um, again, the, the baptism of the Spirit is not for salvation. It is for those who are new creatures in Christ, friends, Christians, for power to minister Jesus to the lost, the broken, the dead, and the rebellious, for sinners. It is for normal Christianity and for normal life to be filled over and over and over, to be revived by the Spirit of the living God. The book of Acts lays this out. And until we get this and beg God for this and wait for this and plunder heaven with our prayers, I, I just, I do not, I do not think we're going to see, we're not going to see the kingdom of God come as it's meant to come. Jonathan Edwards, the American Puritan, as it were, he says this. He says, it may be observed from, that from the fall of man to our day, the work of redemption in its effects has been mainly carried on by remarkable communications of the Spirit of God. Okay, the work of redemption, by and large, Edward says, has just been carried on through these remarkable outpourings of the Spirit of God as God's people wait on him and pray. We cannot manufacture, we cannot orchestrate a revival. We cannot orchestrate the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the filling, but it's our inheritance through Christ, and we are called to pray for it and to wait for it and to beg God for it. Two camps, two camps, sort of, as we talk about this baptism of the Spirit, Sort of the radical camp, you know, David Platt, he didn't exactly write his book on the baptism of the Spirit, although Martin Lloyd-Jones did. It's called Joy Unspeakable. I'd highly recommend it. Even if I don't line up with everything he says there, um, it's a great book. And he takes you through the book of Acts and the baptism of the Spirit and how everything I've been saying, how it's normal, normal Christianity. It's meant to be. But David Platt in his book Radical years ago, and man, let's, let's just get radical, and, it, and we, man, we want God to move in power in exceptional ways. And then Michael Horton a theologian out at Westminster West in California, um, he wrote a book kind of in response to that, sort of a jab, a jab and it, it called Ordinary. So Platt writes a book called Radical, and, and Horton writes, writes a book called Ordinary. What's he getting at? Um, he's getting at the fact that, yes, we want God to come in extraordinary ways, and Ed, even Edwards says, Jonathan Edwards, a theologian of great repute, um, that the extraordinary outpourings of the Spirit that we're begging God for are really the life of the church and the way that God does redemption throughout the church history. Um, but also there are these regular means of grace that we get, coming together weekly, sharing life together in our house church communities, um, feeding on the table, hearing the preached and the taught word of God, operating in the gifts that he's given to us, loving one another, laying our lives down, all the, the everyday normal stuff, the grace of God played out in a thousand different ways, 10,000 ways, to quote um, from Gerard Manley Hopkins. Um, Christ playing out in 10,000 ways, the regular means of grace. Well, which is it? 
The extraordinary outpouring of the Spirit or the regular means of grace? Yes, both. Why pick? Let God pick. God work in both ways. We are called in the Scriptures to beg him for the extraordinary outpouring, as we see here, and also to be faithful, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and know that he's finished the work and to continue to go to work, to come home, to be in our neighborhoods, to go to the shops that we attend, to carry Christ wherever we go. Okay? So, and finally, so the prayer, wait, the power, be filled, point two, and finally, the plan, go. In short, go. Acts 1, verse 1, this first verse, guys, how does, how does Luke, so Luke wrote the book of Acts. He wrote the book of Acts. He wrote Luke first, which is, tells us about Jesus and his life, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. And then he picks up this book. He picks up his second book in, in Acts here, and he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, in Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus, what, began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And this is where he starts the book of Acts. So he's saying that the gospel of Luke that I wrote is about what Jesus, what, began to do and teach. All right, what's the implication? That Luke 2.0, a.k.a. Acts, is about what Jesus will continue to do and teach. Where's Jesus? He's in heaven. Yes, but his body is here on earth, and we are empowered to do and to teach, for Jesus to do and to teach through us as he sends us his spirit. That's in the first verse what Luke is strongly implying. What we are seeing is somebody said uh, the book of Acts should be called not the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Really the Acts of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus, the church is what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach as he empowers us for ministry. Nothing less. Nothing less. Acts 2.17, and we'll get to this next week, but Peter, just to give you a taste, Peter starts preaching, he gets up, He's clueless, he's without understanding, without power, he waits on God and gets the Holy Spirit even though he's saved, and when he gets the Holy Spirit, he goes out and starts preaching, and people are getting saved, and it's not Peter, it's the Holy Spirit, and it's what Jesus has done, and he's reigning, and he's just working, and how does he start that sermon? He says, hey, hey, everything you're seeing about all of us going out and speaking in tongues and preaching the gospel in these different languages, that all these Jews from the dispersion... Our, our understand and speak, um, this, that we're not drunk. This is a fulfillment of the prophecy that Joel gave hundreds of years ago where he said, in, these la- in the last days, these things will happen. And Peter is saying, that's now. That's what he clearly says in Acts 2 at the beginning of his sermon. The last days are now, and what you're seeing is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel. What's the point? Jack Deere says it this way, tongue-in-cheek. What, you can't get more last than last. If you think the last days are in the future, you're wrong. Peter corrects you. Acts 2 corrects you. The rest of the New Testament corrects you. We are in the last days. Our time is short. God is moving in power. He's reigning in person on the throne of God, and he is doing and teaching through his church as he fills us up with his Holy Spirit. And this is it. When he returns, he's coming to finish to judge, to finish the work, and to make all things new. So if you think of last days and the book of Revelation and all that stuff chiefly as stuff that's coming and you're looking to try to discern times and seasons, as Jesus said, don't do that. (laughs) We spend so much time working out our charts, what's going to happen. Jesus says, forget that stuff. You wait, you get filled, and then you go. 
and you be my witnesses. Okay, these are the last days. Your time is short. That's why the angels rebuke the disciples in verse 11. Why are you standing looking into heaven? Get thee to Jerusalem like he told you. It's about to be go time. Go when you're filled. Whether it's across the street, going maybe across the street to your neighbor's house, some brownies, invite him over for dinner. I don't know. Going could be actually speaking about Jesus to your hairdresser, um, to your coworker. Uh, going could be going to a far country. Um, 90% as of 2010, at least, is an old stat, 90% of, of, of Christian uh, workers on the globe were going to 10% of the world's population. So we need to take this go command a lot more seriously. The fact of the matter is, though, that the nations are here, as I started this sermon by saying. The nations are here. God has planted us in the most culturally, ethnically, internationally rich place on the planet in the history of the world. God, would you help us to wait? Would you fill us? Would you help us to do and to teach what you are doing and teaching Jesus Christ? To, to listen for what you're saying and to say it. To watch what you're doing and to do it just as Jesus did. Only he can help us to do that, but when he helps us to do it, when the Spirit comes, oh my, it will be done. And I want to be a part of it. I want to jump in that river. Yes, I do. Man. Um, you look at verse 8. Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses from Jerusalem all the way out to the ends of the earth. Within the lifetime of, of the apostles, this had happened. They had gone out and taken the gospel to the known world. So why do we doubt that he already made good on his word? He made good on his word in the first generation before we hit 100 AD. Why do, why do we think he's... <laughs> I mean, he won't do that through us. He will. He's waiting. Let's plunder heaven together for it to happen in this generation. God, bring revival. Bring your Holy Spirit. Equip us for the work of the ministry. Keep us from doing our own work. May we do your work and speak your word. Um, and lastly, verse 3. Lastly, verse 3, and then we pray and take communion together. But um, it says in verse 3, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. What does that mean? In short, it means that he suffered, why? For our sin. For the death that sin caused and for the hell that we deserve and that we merit because we've cut ourselves off from God through disobedience. And we have become not just people who sin, but sinners. He took that. He paid for that. He finished it. And then he rose from the dead. He finished that work and he left it in the ground and he rose and he's our representative. And he showed himself by many proofs to his disciples. In other words, no matter what happens moving forward, guys, you get beaten, you get stoned, you get driven out, you get, pro you get persecuted, you get made fun of, you get your skin peeled off a lot, you get sawn in two, you get thrown in a vat of burning oil like John probably did. He was the only apostle we know of out of this, these 12 not to die a martyr's death, but they tried, couldn't kill him. So they exiled him to the island, the rock island of Patmos, and that's where he wrote Revelation. Thank God. God still had work for him to do. If God still has work for you to do, you will not die. You will not die. I'm re starting to read a book right now on um, Stonewall Jackson, and he was a staunch Presbyterian. And man, he said, he has this famous quote where he says, I'm as safe. He was known, they called him Stonewall, right? Because he was known for just sitting like a stone wall in the midst of bu bullets just whizzing past his head. <laughs> and, you know, other soldiers are like wincing and, He's just on his horse, charge, you know, and he said, I'm as safe on, the ho on a horse in battle as I am in my bed because God is my God, and the minute he wants for me to go, it's going to happen. Until he does, I'm safe. 
And so, man, if God still has work for us to do, if God still has work for you to do, God, do it through me. I'm safe. I'm fine. No matter what happens, put me in the center of your will. Sin, death, and hell are taken care of. So what? I, we win. We win. Lord, fill us. Lord, use us. Lord, equip us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for <laughs> giving us everything we need for life and godliness. Um, I thank you for calling us to this place. I thank you for calling us to yourself. I pray that you would fill us, that you would help teach us to be a people who wait, who know what that looks like and who do it, and who just wait on you in a thousand different ways, Lord, as we move, as we breathe, as we interact, as we're on our knees, literally. And if, man, if we don't know you this morning, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would save in power, that you would sanctify, that you would purify, that you would equip. Get glory, Jesus. Get glory through us. Use us. In Jesus' name, amen.